Hello, and welcome to the Love Shared podcast from the River Church in Redlands with the latest in our dialogue series. Our monthly discussion where we sit down with great guests and dive into conversation at the intersection of faith and society. In episode 14, Pastor Nick Intout talks with Pastor John Portinga about his work in hospice care as they discuss the topics surrounding death and dying. Check out the show notes for any additional information from the episode. Now, let's get started. The goal of our dialogue series was to talk about things that, uh, as a church community and as a community that are hard to talk about, um, to try to kind of put language to things that uh, we sometimes don't have language for, uh, in the hopes that the more we learn to talk through things, the easier it will be to uh, sort of love people through different uh, circumstances. So this is our fifth one, and our topic, kind of what we're walking through tonight, is talking about death. And I've been really fascinated with this for a while um, because the whole like zombie thing um, in our culture was so interesting to me that uh, people just became obsessed with like shows like The Walking Dead. And it seemed like everyone was trying to come out with a new zombie show. And I, I walked into a comic book store recently and was talking to the people about like, what's the deal with zombies? And we just kind of got into this whole dialogue about death and how as a culture we suppress it and suppress it and suppress it. And so eventually it comes out somehow and what zombies are are basically like dead people coming back to life. So um, I just think it's fascinating. And uh, my good friend John Portinga is with us tonight. Um, I'm going to give a little intro to John just so you know the relationship that that we have and what he has meant to me. Uh, For years and years and years I prayed to God for someone who could um, mentor me and and help lead me and and shepherd me. And um, John, uh, I worked with John, um, but much more than that, he he mentored me for, I don't know how many years, three, four, five years um, here at the river. And more than any person, I think, um, in my young adulthood, uh, John believed in me and affirmed me and is a master at walking with people through their life. He is a master at coaching, a master at um, blessing, encouraging, uh, removing lids for people so that they can flourish. And um, he now is, uh, after 25 years of kind of church uh, leadership and ministry, is uh, leading a team of hospice chaplains. Is that right? Is that the right? Yeah, I work, I work in hospice and I work with a team of chaplains, um, social workers, and nurses, uh, and home health aides, and we provide care in hospice for people who have a diagnosis of six months or less to live. So we provide care for them, for their families, and for their caregivers. And um, we are super excited to learn from you because I know that sort of a, uh, your transition from, um, you know, working within a, a organized church to being um, a hospice chaplain was a, oh, a significant transition. And we talked, um, you know, years ago as you were making that about some of what you were learning. And uh, it's just, you've always been a, a great guide, um, a sort of a, a front runner and somebody who can turn around and, and, and explain to people 
um, you just have a good pulse on sort of like the culture and Christianity and I think even what the Holy Spirit is doing in our culture. And so we're really excited and blessed. Uh, I feel really privileged to, to just learn with you um, in this fifth dialogue. So your transition from kind of church into um, or church ministry world, whatever, to uh, being a hospice chaplain. Um, what was that? What was that like? What were some of the initial things that you felt like God was kind of teaching you about people that were were dying? Well, initially, I wasn't dealing with that many people that were dying. I for for about a year, I did clinical pastoral education at Loma Linda Hospital, University Medical School, and so I was. I was on a couple of wards during that time. Um, one was a transplant unit, another was a cardiac unit. And um, so, so that, that was my initial experience with those patients. But part of the, the, the big learning curve initially was I was with a group of five others and myself who were, we were coached and Basically, they would take people who had education, theological education, who were looking at a career move into chaplaincy, and you would meet, we would meet once a week for a whole morning. And um, a big part of what they tried to do was to rip you apart. Uh, these supervisors were trained at ripping you apart and making you look deeply at yourself in your interactions with other people. Now, for people who are religious, and of course everyone who came into that, into that group, with that group, they were all deeply religious. They were all connected with some denomination or some faith, and so part of their goal is to show you what your baggage is. Well, uh, I was born and raised in the Christian Reformed Church and have spent my life in that church. Uh, there, were, there were a few rebellious years that I didn't darken the door of a church. Um, but you carry so much more baggage than you realize. And for me, a person who I had always been someone, and you know this about me, I, I love dealing with people who Others, you know, might not like to. Um, people who are considered lost by the church or... Is that why you took such an affinity, you think, to me? It was just like, <laughs> yeah, could have been. You were lost. Yeah. You were lost. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> uh, um, so... You know, in the course of that, then, I'm intensely with for four and a half months. Each unit was four and a half months. I'm with a group of people who uh, we would make visits. We would, we would have to do creative verbatim, mm. uh, which is a word-to-word -word of visits that we would make, and we would have to present that to the group. That's right. I remember you talking about that. So an example, you walk into... A, a setting, a patient's a patient's room, and you have to you have to analyze everything from the the context of the room to this person to to however this visit, and then 
all of that gets, and then you have to take that apart afterward yourself, writing on that, and then it all gets presented in front of the group. And then they, they sort of analyze. So let me ask you a question. You said they're kind of trying to rip you apart <laughs> and sort of help you look at your yeah. baggage. Why? Why are they trying to um, help you see? Because you said baggage. Is it kind of like the agenda that you're carrying into yes. a room? Yeah. So your own belief system um, and how you come across uh, so that, I mean, part of the goal is that when you walk into this stranger that you're going to meet, and right. of course I do that in hospice, you know, regularly I probably average about three or four new patients a week. So you're continually in that situation. Hmm. And to be able to come in like more as a blank slate hmm. without an agenda for this person, for this visit, um, and that was probably one of the big things that I that I had to learn about and I had to grow in hmm. because as a pastor of 25 years and as someone who very very much wanted people to come to know Jesus mm -hmm. um, that was always the goal that was lurking you know in every conversation mm -hmm. and I think uh, people who are very Christian you know they're you know they think about people that way they think about them are they in? So when they're meeting people, they are they in or are they out? Mm. Are they part of the kingdom? Are they not a part of the kingdom? If, mm. if and if they and you perceive and you don't even realize how much you're making those judgments mm. about people in your mind. Yeah. And of course, you know, I mean, from my perspective, Jesus didn't make those judgments. Right. Um, to him, they were all in the kingdom. Yeah. They were, you know, the kingdom was, you know was this mustard tree that grows and, and makes room for all the birds mm. of heaven. Wow. And I think I've met just about all the birds in heaven <laughs> of heaven in the last in the last seven years. That's interesting like unlearning that. I, I can I mean when you were describing that, I flashed back to being seventeen. I remember being in my dad's truck uh, and I was with an employee of his who um, wasn't, you know, in, in my little Christian box or whatever. And I remember sitting there driving, talking to him, trying to think about how I could sort of like, they call it like a Jesus juke, right? Like he's talking about whatever, his family and, and you know, his growing up. And I'm not listening to any of it. I'm not caring about him. My only thought is, how can I slip this dude some Jesus, mm -hmm. right? Like, how can I like hit him over the head with Jesus so that all of a sudden he, you know, has this experience where he recognizes, hey, I'm a sinner and what I ultimately need is Christ. And I think we feel like Christians sometimes feel this, can feel this pressure, right? And this fear of if I don't do this, and maybe as pastors we put this on people or like a guilt or something, but if, if I don't do this, um, you know, this, this person could be lost for forever. Yeah. And in the Bible, it seems like what you see a lot more is that the strangers um, and, and those kinds of people um, often play the part of a hero or a, uh, an instructor or a teacher where they're the one retraining, you know, um, the people who think they know, mm. the people who, you know, that think that they got God figured out. Yeah. And it's that stranger and that person, um, you know, who would say is outside the kingdom who's coming in 
with a correction, a, a corrective. Um, so I just, I love that part of your story, the verbatim, uh, you know, that exercise I think is really fascinating and interesting. So you, you spend a year kind of in that learning environment. Yes. And, um, what, what comes after that? Well, you know, I, I had no intention of going into hospice. In fact, the idea of being around dying people all the time, it just kind of seemed depressing to me. Uh, but I was assigned a guy who did a little bit of mentoring with me over that year and a half there. And I heard him off the cuff talking with someone some one day and saying, uh, someone asked him, of all the things you've done in chaplaincy, and he is a, ch he is a chaplain at Loma Linda, he, uh, he, so what was the what was your favorite thing that you did? And he said, just very quickly, he said hospice. And so I tracked him down a week or so later, and I said, I I, I want you to tell me about that. What 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 did that mean to you? Why do you say that? Um, and in listening to him, it it kind of made me think a little bit more about it. Um, now, I have, in some ways, a natural affinity to hospice in that I have had some intense losses in my personal life. And those losses, in fact, one was the loss of a daughter. And I won't go into that story, but that changed me so much. And... Um, you know, for for a couple of years that followed that, I was acutely grieving and deeply, deeply wounded by that experience, my wife and I both. Um, and that impacted us, our faith. And, and a friend of mine at one point in that process said to me, John, when you come through this, whatever that means to come through that, and we can talk about grief as well, and but he said, you're going to be a different person. And you probably aren't going to want to do the same things anymore. And he was, that was prophetic. He was right. And, and I found in hospice, again, God's call in my life. So what, can I ask, what was that? What, what happened? What shifted? I mean, he said, you're not going to want to do, do the same things anymore. What was that? thing that well it was the experience of of loss um and coming and that that whole journey uh and my wife and i had a number of losses in regard to our family and and um this friend of mine also he, he knew our story and uh, he knew that i used to be a pastor in this church and that came to a pretty bumpy end and, um, and there was deep loss in that as well and you know like anything else I think in life if you if you don't become bitter through those losses uh, I think God has a way of redeeming pain and of, of somehow turning it to your good not that I mean that would be I think C.S. Lewis or someone wrote a book called A Severe Mercy. Mm. That's a severe mm. mercy. Mm. Um, and I would not wish that on 
anyone. And if I could still, there's most of the experiences in my life, I would say I would, I would take those with the good and the bad. But of that of losing a child, it is just, uh, yeah, it, there's no words to describe it. Hmm. But that became part of our journey. And, and I would not be doing chaplaincy and hospice chaplaincy had it not been for that experience. Hmm. Because I get, I, I get what it means to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right. through, through, that, through that grief, and I can relate to that. Um, you know, I remember when I started into hospice, uh, I, you know, I, I had been preaching for 25 years at mm. that point in my life. I was sick of my own voice, mm. you know. <laughs> I'm sure that most others were sick of, of hearing me too, but I was just ready to listen. Mm. And I knew, I knew the people who had helped us, uh, who God had brought into our own lives, mm. because when we lost her, uh, we lost many of our friends mm. who they did not know how, they didn't have a clue how to be with us hmm. and to handle that grief. But the beauty of it is that God brought some others into our lives hmm. who did get it. It's interesting that you mentioned this. Um, we recently, one of our friends is uh, Cheryl Weir's, Matt's wife, um, walking through cancer treatment. Um, and it's it was interesting uh kind of right away a bunch of our friends got together and you immediately saw people who had walked through something uh, similar or you know uh, weighty uh, cancer uh, who had this you know ability to 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 go there Um, and it wasn't that other people weren't willing to they just it's you're not sure how right and it's almost like unless you've walked through that valley at, at some level, um, you know, how, how are you going to be sort of a guide if you haven't walked through it? Um, and that being said, nobody would, would ever ask for that. Um, but, but in that way, you know, there's, there's a, a preparation and sort of like a weightiness of, of some, some sort that you, you develop. Um, so, hospice for people who maybe aren't really familiar with what hospice is um what's like it's a government uh agency a government program and yet there's this connection with uh chaplains and sort of spiritual care how does that work how why why does that exist it's very interesting that it does exist um i think for a couple of reasons, uh, but let me just say this, that so hospice is not a government program. Um, what it is, is either for-profit or non-profit organizations that do the work of hospice. That being said, 95% of our dollar comes from Medicaid, so it comes from the government. So the government requires uh, a lot of things of hospices, like I, I gave you a description of our team and who's in our team. All of that is required. So it's very interesting that the government requires 
chaplains to be a part because we we are so much we believe in separation of church and state but for whatever reasons the military has chaplains and hospice has chaplains and it's required so <laughs> so and and i think you know that because of i mean there is such a a deep interest in spirituality in this country yet um, despite what people say, and, and I might comment on that later too, uh, because I think that I think the spiritual energy in this country is as strong as it's ever been. Hmm. It's just more issues in relationship to organized religion and church, and that's what I deal with. I deal with that all the time. Yeah, say say more about okay. that. Okay. Yeah. I would say, and what someone asked me to think once. Uh, asked me a question when I was with our team. So what's the percentage of people that you deal with that are in the church as a hospice chaplain? And I would say 90% of them in Southern California are not connected with organized religion. And I kind of checked these stats out with my team as I put out, you know, responded to that question. And I said, of those, I would say about 75% of them have some kind of deep hurt or wound that was inflicted on them by the church or their experience of organized religion. And so that is a huge part of my work. And, And... those that are strong Christians that are in churches, I do see some of them, but that's not the most part of who I see because they have pastors. And uh, so I still do try to connect people to organized religion, but that is a hard sell for people who, who um, most of the people, they don't even, that I deal with, I think they are deeply spiritual um, I would define spirituality different than I than I would before, um, and we could talk about that too. But um, to they, many of them don't even see that if they were hungry spiritually and wanted to do something about that, that they would that they would go to a church. That's that. There's no connect there for them. Why would I do that? Why would I want to? join a club. Church is a club. Why would I want to be a part of something that just wants my money? You know, and a big part of what I do is if I can get in and into these homes and, you know, because they can, they can not have a chaplain if they don't want to. So a big part of what I do is, uh, I try to find my way in. And, and so when I get make my first phone call to them. I'll introduce myself as a chaplain and, and, um, and say that spiritual care is part of what we are offering and uh, see if, if, if they will accept me to come and make a visit and just introduce myself. Mm-hmm. And so one of the first things I'll often hear is, well, I'm not religious. <laughs> and I'll go, okay, well, we don't have to talk about religion. Mm-hmm. And, and well, you know, and I said, well, how about if you just, if we get together and, and, you know, I think 
And and most do, of the time, I get in those doors. I get in those places. Do you think people feel like you're going to bring an agenda to me? Yes. You're going to come, if, if you're uh, with a, a religion or whatever, you're going to come at me with your... Absolutely. I'm dying here, and I just don't want to deal with that. Yes. Hmm. Uh, that's absolutely right. That's And so they have... They have big chips on their shoulder, walls, you know, um, that are up. And, and I have to get behind those walls. And how you do that is, you know, you do that through caring, through being interested in them, through listening. Um, and I love to listen to people's stories and to, to hear them and value them. And most importantly, not judge them. Mm because they feel like any religious person is going to judge them. And so, you know, many times they'll even, in the first, the people who are really the, some of the hard nuts <laughs> are, you know, they'll do something in the first 10, 15 minutes I'm with them to really turn me off, to insult me, or just put the bait out there for me to take and and looking for me to take the bait, and and then you know then they can they they can label me mm. and dismiss me. Mm. Well, I th you know one of the things that I am most happy about, um, and I see how God uses me, is I think in seven years there's only one one time mm. that a person that I went to see did not want to see me again and that was a it was just someone who was such a hardcore atheist that they just they just didn't even want me in their home it so. was it wasn't a, a somebody who was like a, a white Sox fan or <laughs> and just were like dude cubs no way um so the Sox and cubs are in first place right now I best know two that. teams I know in baseball you tigers fan yeah I, I realize that just wait it's a long season <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's a very long season so what do you feel like, I mean, obviously I don't want to say that you wish you knew 20 years ago about life, but what do you feel like watching people kind of in their last days um, is teaching you about how to live? Do you feel like there's a, I don't know, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. I think one of the first things that I had to learn um, and I already spoke about it. I, I had to stop labeling people. Um, you know, that was, that God just had to root that out of me in terms of thinking who's in and, and who's out. And then your question again. Um, what do you feel like watching people oh, kind of as, yeah. they're, as they're coming to the end? Um, what is it? How is it shaping, forming you and, yeah. and your ideas about living? I think... You know, for me, one of the key things that I've learned is, and this is going to sound strange if you are a Bible scholar, is that death is not the enemy. Hmm. Um, and there is a passage in the writings of Paul that speaks about the last enemy being death and that Christ overcoming death. And... And so the language is couched in terms of enemy. And so Christian people, and, and that goes well with our culture, which is a culture of youth and life, 
the Christian people tend to think that that death is an is an enemy, and I thought that mm. uh, that that was my one of the things I had to lose a little bit. Um, I understand death so much differently now. I see it as I see it as a part of life. Mm. I see it as a natural outcome uh, in a flow of life, and that the, the the cycle of life, and I know that there's a famous <laughs> Disney a movie about yeah. about the, the, Lion <laughs> the, King. Lion King. the Lion King. But you know, I think one of the things that when I look back at the Lion King that they got right is that there is a cycle of life. There's a cycle that God built into this world of of birth and life and death hmm. and of everything that that is still on this earth creating new life. And I came to understand some of what Jesus taught about, you know, I think differently as well. You know, when, when um, he talked about his own death and that if he didn't die, you know, the life could not come forward. But if he died, mm. then life would flow out of that. Yeah. And so I, for a lot of the people that I am dealing with, death is a friend. Mm. Um, I, I spent yesterday afternoon with a, a man, beautiful man. Um, he's and he is a Christian. Uh, I don't think he'd been connected with the church for a while, but, but his faith has gotten stronger while we've been together too. But he said to me, in one of the best conversations I had with him yesterday. He said, he said, I'm, you know, I I want to see my wife, mm. you know. I said, well, tell me about her. And he told me about her. I mean, they were married 54 years. Wow. And he's been five years without her. And, you know, he's got a good family. And people would look at him and say, you know, he's still got reason to live. But he said, you know, I'm just, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I want to see, I want to see Jane. Mm. You know, I want to, I want to be with her again. And for for people, eventually, they, you know, when they have suffered for a while, <laughs> you know, and and there is not a light in terms of getting better, you know, there there reaches this point where you accept it, and um, thankfully, due to our care and the, and good good pain control and medications and. You know, we can do a lot to relieve what is often, you know, pain and trauma in regard to death. Mm. Uh, and for many people, it's it's not death that they're afraid of. Um, it is the process mm. of dying and what that's going to be like. What that's going to be, is it going to cost my family a ton of money? Mm. Is it going to, uh, is it going to be painful? Um Am I going to be put in some institution somewhere, you know, and, and largely be alone? Mm. Am I going to have to look in the eyes of my loved ones, you know, who, and say these, and go through this hard experience of letting go? And those are, those are more of what people are afraid of than they are death itself and, and what's beyond. Do you find as you're um, walking with patients that 
uh, some of your work also is with kind of friends and family. Are, are you a part of helping them interact with, with this person in, in that place? Is that a part of your work as well? And what do you feel like for the families and, and people who are walking with somebody that's dying um, is kind of a common experience or a common thing that, that you try to help them do? Part of, uh, you know, a big part of what I do is, is help them process death themselves. And like you said, this is an area that a lot of people don't talk about. And then suddenly it's, it's there. Someone you love, someone you care about is going to go. And so, you know, that's a big part of what we do. In fact, many times for, for if I have very demented patients, there may be very little that I can do. Although, amazing for many demented people that our team deals with, one of the very, very last things that goes for them is their spirituality. Uh, and I, I could tell you, I could tell you a hundred stories about that kind of experience of when we thought someone was gone, uh, but connecting them to, uh, you know, connecting them to memory that was there, sometimes that goes way back. Tell us one. Tell us okay. Uh, One of the things I always say to people is that when I'm in these last, the last period of time with, with a person, because rarely is a person consciously interacting when they die, you know, in our situation. Um, so um, I always say treat your, this loved one like they're in the room, mm. like they can hear every word that you're saying. And they say, well, even if they're demented, even if their brain is gone, I said, I said <laughs> I'll say to them, you know, their spirit, their spirit is still with them. And I think sometimes, even if it's not in their body anymore, it can linger, their spirit can linger right in that room. Yeah. And and many times, um, so someone will be looking, I mean, I'm talking about the last stages now, but, you know, they'll be looking in this gate with their eyes open, just gazing out at something that's there or, you know, and, or they'll, they'll be seeing people in the room hmm. um, that, that uh, most of our staff would say, they're not there. Yeah, right. <laughs> And this is another thing that I, over and over again, I've had the experience of being in that situation and and seeing someone, um, and they're, most of the time, they're actually seeing this person. It's rarely a, it's rarely a bad experience. Um, it's usually someone who has died and gone before them, and... Um, and it seems, and there's nothing in the Bible to really support this, but empirical body of evidence is <laughs> that 
God seems to send someone who you know, who you love to, uh, and this is my own way of putting it into words, to usher you into the life to come. And so they will, you'll see many times they'll be gesturing. or So in that situation, I would be helping a family um, process that part of the experience, that last part. And one of the hard things is often that in the last weeks of a person's life, there's something called terminal agitation um, or terminal restlessness. And it doesn't matter whether you are a person of faith or not. You, you may get spared it, you may not. It doesn't matter. For many people of faith, that's one of the hardest things. Because they say, is my, my loved one not at peace? Are they, how come they're anxious? How come they're restless? Um, that, you know, they could be dying, or they're, they're going to be dying. And, you know, and, and many times... Um, for Christian people that I have dealt with, some of them have the hardest time with that. Because do they think, oh no, they're entering, they're not entering heaven. Yes, they may not be entering heaven. So there's a question about their yeah. Mort- yes. In fact, I think one of the hardest things that I have dealt with in hospice is evangelical Christians who are not at peace with their loved ones dying hmm. and feel like they... They have to get them to pray a prayer or to, you know, and, and they're not going to be at peace with their love, the loss of their loved one until they know that. Hmm. And um, so that's, so, you know, that was a struggle for me in, in caring for them because I'm, I got to care for everyone. And, um, and one of the things that I would say in that situation to people was, so you are a committed Christian. Have you ever told this loved one, your dad, your mom, your brothers, have you ever told them about Jesus, about your love for Jesus? And um, invariably, they will say, yes, I have. And I say, well, why don't you just love them? Just love them and let them know that God loves them. Don't look for some prayer um, and trust that God is at work in that person's life. I, uh, I've come to view those, those weeks and those times when a person is not conscious to us as a time that God is preparing this person for the life to come. So I assume, I pray. Wait, so when this person is unconscious mm-hmm. and for, let's say, a week or two, you're in the room with them and even speaking with them, mm-hmm. and you see that as a preparation uh, for them of the life to come. Preparation so for eternity. Huh. And part I've of, never heard that. No, well, that was that was uh, developed in in my mind. I hadn't heard that either, but part of it developed in my mind when I was at Loma Linda, hmm. and I I had about 
oh, four or five Catholic priests that were in my groups. And so I wanted to know. I would challenge them all the time. I'd tell me, how do you look at this as a Catholic? What's your experience? I'd say, so one time I said to them, so what about purgatory? <laughs> you know, how, how does that work in, in the, with your dying? And is that still, I don't know enough about sort of Catholic doctrine. Is, there, is purgatory still a significant yes. part of? But it's, this is what he said. There were a couple of young priests and, um, and they were teaching me and where Roman Catholic theology is in regard to purgatory now. And it used to be that it was this place of kind of punishment and, and um, you know, not a place you want to be. And you might be there for a long time until somebody buys you out or prays you out. Or, and, and he said, uh, he said, you know how we look at purgatory now is that there is a time of preparation Purgatory is a time of preparation for the presence of God. And honestly, I was, I was, that was one of those aha moments mm. for me that made me think differently than I did before. Do you, and, do you think the entire, so in your experience, would you say for some people, that entire dying process, I mean, when it's, you know, weeks or months or years even, do you see that whole process as preparing people to be in the sort of the full presence of God? I do. And I pray during that time that God will reveal himself to people in ways they've never been able to see him. Hmm. And that the experience of facing the end of one's life um, will be sobering enough um, and there's so many changes that are going on physically, in the mind, uh, you know, all of these things during that period of time. Um, I pray, you know, I've, I, I've sat many times when a person is dying that did not have, that, that may have been one of those people with a chip on their shoulder that never acknowledged God or whatever, and I'm, I'm sitting with their, their loved ones now. And, and if they are open... To, to God, I will, you know, the people that are gathered, I mean, trying to respect the, the, the dying person too and what they believed or didn't believe. But I pray that, that God would show himself, that Jesus would show himself to this person now in a way that they have never been able to see him before. Wow. Um, and... You know, I mean, there there are things about the dying process or near death. Um, let, you know, you look at you look at the things in Scripture. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Jesus saying, "I am the light of the world," and how common it is for people to see, whether they're of faith or not, right? To see a light, right? To hear a voice, yeah. Um, and and oftentimes even to be told, "I'm sending you back." Yeah, and to experience. Uh, so I've been kind of fascinated with this in the last couple of months. There's a book by a guy named, I think it's John Burke called Imagine Heaven. And there was a study of, um, that a bunch of scientists did 
um, years back of I think like a thousand people who had these near-death experiences. Um, and so he kind of goes through those experiences that, that you know, these um, medical folks looked at and documented and tries to apply a, um, you know, a Christian lens to some of what people are experiencing. But that is totally, I think two-thirds of people experience some, or maybe it was three-quarters, light and they describe a love that um, is kind of overwhelming that, that they didn't want to leave the presence of, right. um, which I think is just really, really, to me, even hearing it was sort of, I don't know, it, it gave me a different perspective on, on this life. And, um, you know, I, I haven't read the book, but I'm, I'm looking for, have you, have you heard of that before? The I Imagine? haven't heard of that one. Okay. Well, I'll read it and let you know. Well, I think, I think it was C.S. Lewis talked about thin spaces mm. and where heaven is becoming more real and earth is fading or you know and and of course you know he wrote the chronicles of narnia which were you know there's thin spaces between this realm and another realm and and i look at it that way that this is a it's a it's a privilege for me to be a part of it i teach people this is sacred ground. And I'll have the first visit and they'll say, thank you, thank you for coming, thank you for... And I'll say, you know what, this is my privilege. Mm. This, is, this is sacred ground for okay. you and for your family. And this is an honor for me to be able to be here and to be a part of it and to walk with you through it. There's a story that you told a while back that I've actually shared with, I think, um, uh, the Leonard's. Um, about a friend of yours who you had a family um, that as you were walking through the, the dying process, um, the family relationships, and that's one thing that often happens, right? In these experiences, the family comes together and there's a lot of just relational baggage that people are bringing to, these, to the rooms that you're kind of you know, entering. Um, it's not necessarily people who love each other and care about one another and are patiently walking through this process. They're bringing in their life um, into this experience that can be kind of chaotic and tragic. And, um, but you have a great story about a friend of yours who um, plays, plays the harp. Will you share that? I will share. And I'm, I am going to share the other story first that you had asked me to share one. And I'll, I'll try to do that briefly. But this one's very fresh in my mind. You talked about someone who was more conscious than we realized. Mm. I had a man um, who, he died just a few weeks ago. And um, he was in his 90s. And uh, when I came to meet him for the first time, he was very suspicious of me. And uh, not sure that he wanted to have me around. And... And it turns out he was Jewish background, raised an American Jew. And you can imagine uh, being raised an American Jew and watching the rise of Hitler. And he was from, you know, his roots were from Germany. And so uh, when I asked him about, when I got to meet him the first time and I asked him a little bit about faith, he just, which is, which is the case for most Jews in America. And, and um, so they, he was at, at least he was non-practicing, um, at most possibly atheist. 
and uh, most of my Jewish patients that I see are on that same ground. And so, yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even connect with him much. But the next thing that I did was I set up a, a pinning ceremony for him as a veteran because he had served in World War II. He was part of the invasion for D-Day invasion, but in the Pacific Theater. Which you can imagine what, as a Jew, what that would mean. I, I can't imagine what that would mean. Um, but he was in his glory that day, and he told stories about uh, that, that experience, and it was, it was marvelous. Anyway, the, that week, that, the week after, he took a significant turn, and suddenly he was what we call actively dying. And here I was, I entered, so I entered this room and, and he was not conscious to us. And he was doing some of the making motions and, you know, that was about the only thing that he was doing. And so his wife, who was also a non-practicing Jew, and his son, I don't, never found out his son's, you know, where he was at, but... Um, his son asked me, he said, so what do you do in this situation with a, you're a chaplain, you deal, do you deal with people of every background? I said, well, I do. I said, the, one of the first things I try to do is to connect them to their, their religious background. I don't need to do all this work, you know, or be the, the pastor or the chaplain to everyone. And I said, you know, your dad didn't indicate to me that he wanted that, but I said, if you would like me to get a rabbi to come in, you know, I, I'll get one. And and um, and son looked at me and said, and his wife, the wife, and they said, no, we're, we're okay with you. <laughs> I said, okay. So the guy said, so what do you do then? I said, well, you know, your your dad would have been raised... You know, where he was raised, he would have been raised in a synagogue. He would have known some of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And I said, oftentimes what I'll do in that situation is just recall what I know was a memory of theirs. And if it's okay with the people that are around, I'll do something like read Psalm 23. And, and, um, which is, you know, recognized by almost every religious tradition in the world as full of beauty and truth and the spirit. And, and, um, and then I'll, I will say the ironic blessing mm. and I'll lay hands on them. And, and as I said that, this guy, all of a sudden, he's just body is going like like this just you know and he's like he's trying to talk and he can't talk and he can't get a word out and his son says dad 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 what are you trying to tell us and and he says and he couldn't speak and and so he's so the son says dad do you want him to do those things and to 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 do that with you and he shook his head hmm. yes and, and so the son said, please, can you, will you do that? Wow. So I gathered them around and, and took the patient's hand and, 
and I explained again who I was and what I was going to do and that um, I know that faith had been a struggle for him in his life, but I was going to read, and so I did. I read Psalm 23, and I just read it very slowly. And, just, and I invited him. I said, if, if you're resonating with these words, just pray them, just speak them in your mind or in your spirit. And, of course, it's so, Psalm 23 is so deeply personal. The Lord is my shepherd. And so, you know, I went through that and um, and then I laid hands on his forehead. I put my hands on his forehead and I prayed the ironic blessing. Mm. And this man who had been so tense in his body, mm. it was this peace just flowed like through the room and over him. And he became, and I thought maybe in that moment he had passed. Wow. Because he was so peaceful. And his breathing had become so peaceful. Remind me never to let you do the <laughs> blessing for me. <laughs> anyway, um, I, la- I had to leave about 10 minutes later. And he died that night. Mm. And I talked with his son the next day. Mm. And, you know, his son said to me, he said, John, did you see what happened there? Mm. I said, I know what I saw, but why don't you tell me what you saw? Yeah. He said, my dad was that? became completely at peace. Mm. And he said he was that way until 2 o'clock in the morning when he died. Wow. And he, you know, he just said, I want to thank you so much for for what you did, and he said, uh, it has so helped me in my own faith journey, you know, so. Wow. Yeah. What an yeah. amazing, yeah. amazing. Because he was already saying, you know, I'm telling my brother this on the phone who's not here, you know, and that's so much of what I do is, you know, it really is letting the Lord work, letting the Spirit work, mm. and just cooperating with the Spirit of God in what God is doing. And I believe, I believe that He's God is at work in every single person that I meet. I don't care what they've said right. or what they believed. Right. And part of my role is to help them prepare for that, whether I can see they're cooperating or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it strikes me as like just being a, a really great perspective, um, you know, for, for a culture that is afraid of it. I feel like I mean I'm I'm learning a ton just sitting here um, with you, but um, you know for a, a culture that we want to distance it um, to affirm that this is part of the life process, and that you know we don't we don't have to be in control of it. You know I mean even I've been a part of so many um, you know prayers for healing, and I, I believe we're still called to pray prayers of healing. Um, and restoration, um, but also affirm that we're, we're not ultimately in control of this process, you know, and and if this is the person's time, and if, you know, this is their next step in the journey, um, I feel like so often we're just interfering with it, you know, 
instead of almost recognizing it and affirming it, which seems to be what you're doing, is, is like you said, cooperating with the Spirit's work yeah. um, instead of fighting against it and trying to control yeah. what God is doing. Yeah, and my, that's a big part of my role. I still will pray with people who want a miracle. Yeah. I'll pray that prayer with them. And, and I know that, you know, God takes all of those prayers and puts and works out, you know, his answer and he'll, he'll honor that prayer. It's a prayer for life. It's a prayer that affirms the beauty of life. And so it's, it's not wrong to, to pray for it at any point, but, you know, I mean, you, and you look at Jesus' own struggle with death. I, you know, we just had Easter a while back and. I did something with my team, and you know, I, not everyone I work with are Christians. Or, um, in fact, one of one of my social workers I work with is Jewish, and I love her. She's just awesome. And um, but I so so on our team meeting uh, the week after Easter, I, I lead a reflection each time, uh, and. So I, I led a I led a reflection there, and I said, you know, I I approached Lent and Easter different this year than I ever have. I looked at, at trying to understand how Jesus, what Jesus did, as he approached death, mm-hmm. and and so when I read those scriptures, um, and so I looked at like Gethsemane in a new way. What, what was Jesus doing there? Well, he was afraid, yeah. for one thing. He was scared. Yeah. He prayed, let this cup pass from me. Right. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through this. Well, Sweating isn't that blood, amazing right? that we have a, we have a God who, who understands that part? Hmm. And what did he do? He went apart to pray, to try to get his mind right. What did he do? He, he leaned into his friends, hmm. you know, for strength. Um, and you go, God leaning into man for strength. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, one of the, so there's so many things that come out of that. One of the things that I encourage people to do, whether they're dying or whether they are a loved one, is to say to them, you know, there's, you need to do two things are really important, uh, at least spiritually to lean into those that are around you and to lean into God hmm. and to take strength from them. I had a f- funny experience uh, with a Catholic man. This was just a few weeks ago, a new patient. And he, he was, what did he, what did he call himself? Um, I was turned by a cafeteria Catholic, he called himself. He said, I, I went to day school, Catholic school, all through these years. And, um, and you know, he said, I, I rejected it when, and I was 18 years old. I, I, I never, never looked back. And he said, you know, and typically, you know, all the stuff with the abuse of the children for the priests and, and all these things, he said, I can't agree with it. So I'm a cafeteria Catholic. I pick and choose from wherever I want. And, and to tell you the truth, I haven't been in a church in, you know, 40 years. <laughs> So and and he was one of these two that initially he was trying to be really this rugged kind of you know push me away, 
And, um, but we talked, we spent an hour together. We talked about, he's from Pittsburgh. We talked about the Steelers and the Bears. So, but we, you know, we, we came to the end and he said, so what are you doing here anyway? <laughs> and I said to him, well, you know, I, I, I've come to, to, to hopefully, if you're willing, to, to walk with you through what you're going through, just to be there and be a part of that. And, and he kind of says, okay, but yeah, what are, what are you really doing here? <laughs> I'm like, okay, I said, so well, maybe I'll ask you a question. I said, I've been listening to you, and, and I, have a, I have a question for you, because I said, you didn't really reject all of God and no, no, I didn't reject all of God, you know. And um, I said, well, would you like to see a priest? No, I don't want to see a priest. <laughs> that was before. But anyway, you know, you, you kind of are in this moment, and you say, how do I, how do I break through to this, this guy, you know, or how does God break through? And so the question popped into my mind. I said, so do you have this much faith? Would you say you have this much faith? And he looked at me and he said, finally he says, yeah, I'd say you have that much faith. Well, I said, there was a guy, you know, Jesus talked to, who, you know, that he, he said, help my unbelief. I'm, I'm, I got this much faith. And, you know, I said, that's all the faith you need. That's, that's all that you need for right now. And if you act on, on that little bit, I said, I believe that you will find that in this journey that, that there will be inner resources and strength and courage provided for you as you walk through this journey, spiritual resources that will help you. And, and, um, and he said, all right. Mm. Uh, what, a, <laughs> what a gift, man. You, you are to people uh, at the most vulnerable point in their life. Mm -hmm. You know, what an incredible gift. Um, well, let me know. tell you the other story. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to close okay. it up, but I'm just want to say that, man. Like, I'm, I'm sitting here going, if I'm dying, I want you there. So <laughs> just make yourself available, okay? Uh, um, yeah, t d tell the music story. That's, yeah. I love that one. I had this patient in a in a home, a large facility, and um, I don't go to facilities that often, but I had this one there, and and I had come to know a woman who was a physical therapist, beautiful woman, um, and her name is Paula, and she. She uh, plays the harp, but she didn't as part of her work in the place. But I found out about it uh, through becoming friends with her. And she said to me one time, she said, John, I, she said, I, I, I play the harp, and I, and I am a, a certified harp therapist, but I won't do that for money. She says, I'm a Christian. And that's part of my ministry. And she said, I want you to know that, that if you ever want me to come into a situation, I'll come and I'll play the harp and sometimes I'll sing, 
Sometimes I won't. I'll do Christian music or other music. And so I, I said, wow, what a gift to me and what a gift to someone else. You know, some, so, and I had heard her play then a couple times she had done that. But um, I had this patient who was, she was, I just had her for a couple weeks and found out in uh, talking with her and the one daughter that was, that was around that there was two other sisters. And these sisters, the three of them, had not talked with each other for years. They were completely alienated, um, didn't speak with each other, didn't see each other, and they were all Christians of some kind. They were all of different denominations. One was a Catholic, one was, you know, and their religion had divided them. And um, so one of them said, I'm going to be coming out and I want to see my mom. But they had arranged it so that they, none of them would see her together. So they wouldn't have to see each other. So I asked one, I said, you know, I know this lady who plays the harp. And um, I would like to invite her to come and to just sing and to, to play and to sing. And I'd like to invite the three of you as sisters to come and be a part of it. You don't have to say a word to each other. Just be there. And I didn't think they were going to go for that. And the one I talked to didn't think they were going to go for it. But they did. And so here are these three sisters. Their, their mom is, she's, she's kind of, she's in the last stages and her eyes are open. And, and Paula comes and she begins to sing and to play and she had, holds her harp. She has a small harp and she comes within just a few feet of the, my patient's face and looks into her eyes and sings just and plays. It was like it was right into her soul. Mm. And I, at the moment she started, I, I backed off into a corner of the room because I just wanted to watch what, what, to see if God was going to do something there to see. And um, it, was a good, it was a good thing that, that I backed into that corner of the room because within five minutes I was, I was just weeping profusely myself. The power of the moment uh, and the sons of God uh, and, and the love of this person and the connection, you know, and, um, yeah, it was so powerful. It, it just overwhelmed all of us. And that moment became the reconciling moment for those three sisters. They decided that they were going to set aside their differences and that they were sisters and they needed to live in relationship with each other. So, yeah, I, it was a, yeah overwhelming, overwhelming moment uh, for me. And, and I talked with, I think the woman died the next day, and I talked with one of the daughters, you know, two weeks later, and she just said, John, I, I can't tell you 
what it, what it what it meant to us, you know, to to find my sisters again, mm. and you know, so <laughs> that's the story. Um, so I think I asked you after I heard you tell that story the first time a couple years ago um, to you know write it down and start writing. Uh, there's so much depth in what you're sharing. And I feel like your story uh, and your experiences are, are shaping the way for a generation of Christians who want to minister to, to people who have been potentially burned by organized religion or maybe just want nothing to do with religion or want nothing to do with God because they associate God with religion. Um, I know you've talked about writing uh, some of your, your thoughts and, and blogging, and I'm just um, really not begging, but short of begging, <laughs> encouraging, hoping, and can't wait to read. I know, I know you're, um, you enjoy that process of writing, and uh, it's, it's just such a gift to us, and so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and please let us know when, when you do, um, you know, start writing, uh, some of these things. Cause I have, I have been writing some of them and that was with your encouragement and, and many, you've encouraged me more than anyone to do that. But, um, there's, there's something about that holds me back, um, about, writing and uh, putting that in print and putting that out there a part of it is it's it is the stories are sacred themselves right and um, part of it is also um, respect for the privacy of the family now i know i've been talking about some of these situations um, and I, I feel comfortable doing that of course i can't name I can't name real names other than the musician, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but we in the medical world, the HIPAA Act. I don't know whether how familiar you are with it, but it is very, very strict about patient confidentiality, mm -hmm. and um, and so I I do have to be very careful yeah. with some of the stories that I tell because. There are, especially when there are people who are, who are well known, right? Um, you know, in in well, whatever a whatever it looks like, <laughs> you know, okay. whatever it looks like, All it's right. just uh, such a gift. It's been a, such a gift for me um, to to learn from you and um, to just see your approach to people in in just really vulnerable places. So, um, is anybody still here? Yeah. Uh, does anybody have any questions? We kind of open it up for a few minutes. If anyone does have any questions uh, that you would like to ask of John. What, what are the requirements to work for hospice? Yeah. Um, in my field, okay, let me say a couple things. Um, this is another brilliant thing Sometimes we don't think the government does anything brilliant, but <laughs> this is a brilliant thing that the government did in that it requires hospices to have 10% of all hours that are put in in regard to patients 
have to be from volunteers. Uh, and I think that that's, that's an amazing thing because I work, we have many volunteers that do all kinds of things uh, for our patients. Some of them do direct spend time with. Um, we have lay chaplains that, that we train, uh, people who are particularly interested in the spiritual part of it. 10% ten, ten of? 10% of all our hours, hours, of all the hospice hours that are put in by our organization, which is Elizabeth Hospice, um, have to be volunteer hours. Huh. So we're continually training volunteers. And many of them are also people who lost a loved one. Mm. And we, we ask that they, they wait a year before they join us in that way. Mm. But those people know how to be with and walk with and, you know, not provide cliches. And we didn't even talk about that, but religious cliches are about the most offensive thing that you can offer to anyone who is, is grieving. And, and we could... We like could, what? what? Give us oh, a religious cliche or two or three. Um, this was the will of God. Hmm. Um, um, you're going to be in a better... Uh, this person, you're going to be in a better place. Um, or he or she's now in a better place. Um, you know, those, those things may very well be true, <laughs> but they are not the things to say to a grieving person. Um, when someone is grieving, you, you know, I always look at like Job's friends. Job's friends, you know, they did everything right for seven days. They, they came, were silent. They came to their friend, and this is what the Jews call sitting Shiva. For seven days, they were silent. Hmm. Silent before the loss and suffering of their friend, before the mystery of death, and they got in trouble as soon as they opened their mouths. Hmm. And they started talking about God, and they started talking about, well, that Job must have sinned. Hmm. And, you know... Yeah, so we, religious cliches are like, should be the enemy when you're dealing with a, a, a person who's grieving. Hmm. Um, let them find those things for themselves um, and let them find Christ in you and in your love. They will see it hmm. and they will know it. Um, but to come back to your question, so anyone can volunteer for hospice. And uh, most hospices, if they're a good hospice, they'll give you training. Uh, the, the hospices I've worked for all did that. Um, as a chaplain, I am required to have, by my, in my organization, I'm required to have a Master of Divinity, um, to um, have taken clinical pastoral education, uh, which I took for a year and a half. Um, and so, and yeah, and experience in ministry. Um, so, so that, yeah, you are bringing in people in those roles who are, who are experienced with issues of life and death. Um, for in our organization, we also have RNs and nurses, 
uh, RNs and LVNs, I should say, who work in our organization, uh, social workers, um, all of them have to, all of them have a, at least a master's degree level of, of, of education and then experience. So, but the good thing is anyone can become a part of that. And many people even, uh, I mean, one of the things, there's one more thing I should have mentioned. Every patient has a home health aid that, um, so, so people with some qualifications in physical caregiving, giving showers, bathing, meals, uh, you know, tidying up a house. Um, in fact, they, <laughs> they often become the very closest people to the dying person because there's physical touch. They're seeing them three, like three times a week often in this intimate setting where a person is, you know, one of the hardest things for those who are in this place is, is they're losing everything. Mm -hmm. Their dignity seems to be just completely gone. And they've lost their driver's license. They've lost their health. They've lost the ability to walk. You know, life just becomes a series of losses. And, and so to have, to be in this place that you are dependent in our culture of independence is brutal. And, and especially for men. Um, and that, I don't think that's a gender thing. I think it's the way we have, men have been nurtured in our yeah. culture. And, um, but that's so hard for them. And so this, this aid that can help them without, while still honoring them and their person um, and their body, you know, all of those things, uh, that's, and so that's a, that's a, can be a entry level for a lot of people who are, who are good caregivers mm. to find their way into hospice and into paid, into a paid role. Good question. Any other questions? Harold? It's not really a question. It's, uh, you're right that God does send people because when my mom went through hospice, I was her caregiver and, uh, I was lucky to hear her stories while she was growing up, how close she was with her sister and my father and everything that like a week before my mom passed away, she was having small strokes and her sister showed up, you know, and I felt her presence, but she kept calling Eleanor, Eleanor. And then the last two days before she passed away, she said, your dad's here and I could feel the presence of my father there. Hmm. And it's like, he was touching me on the shoulder saying, it's okay. I got her now. Wow. And it's just the way you were talking about it, how it does. It's like, it just all came back to me. And this happened in 2011. And it's just great to hear that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's cool. And a question that I'll, I'll ask in that situation is, and I should say the medical profession has gotten better with this now too. Um, they used to automatically prescribe Haldol, you know, <laughs> because you're, they're seeing this person. But now there's such a body of evidence of how common this is that, that they, they don't try to medicate it away unless it's creating frightening delusions or something like that. So like for me, I'll ask, I'll ask the person, so who are you seeing? What, what are they saying? You know, and talk about wanting to be a listening ear and a, a conversation that's in this room that you're not hearing. Wow, it's like. 
Yeah. 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 What did C what did C.S. Lewis call that? A thin veil or a thin spaces? Thin spaces. It's great. Cool. Well, huge thanks, man, for coming up from San Diego for this, and uh, we just love you. And thanks, Nick. It was, a, it was a privilege for me to be here, and yeah, to tell stories, and I hope they can be helpful to to somebody else. Yeah. Thanks, bro. Share the good news of God